You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Well, listen, we have a joy this morning of uh, having Dave Hare and his family. I'll let him introduce them. Uh, but Dave is going to be speaking this morning, and if you've been around here for a while, uh, you know Dave and Stacy and their, their kids, who are uh, a, little, a little older than that when I just saw them out in the, in the lobby, right? Uh, but you know them. Uh, they've been a part of our church since 2012, I think it was. That's when they joined our church, um, and they were here for a while while they were in training to uh, learn uh, uh, Bible translation, basically Bible translation uh, methods, and we were one of two churches that sort of sent them, one in Kentucky where they've been this year on furlough, and then uh, us as well. And so they're in Cameroon, Africa. Uh, it began with them learning the language. He can tell about this and, and giving them a written, uh, a written language. They did not have that. And then um, now they are translating the Bible for them. They have some special guests with them today. I'm going to let him introduce uh, but it's really been our privilege. The timing of this is fantastic because it's been our privilege over the years for the kids as a, uh, as a goal, as a mission goal, and as a fundraising goal. Each year in VBS, the kids throughout the week raise money uh, that we've used to be able to be a blessing to um, the Hare family in their ministry there in Cameroon. So it's just a, a tremendous blessing to have him with us. God is using them in a profound way. Last year, uh, a few of us were able to go and join them as they were with um, a regional group of missionaries reaching unreached peoples in Cameroon. And uh, I think we're looking to go back and do that again this next spring. And so if you have an interest in participating in a team that's going to go to Cameroon next spring, you can talk to Caleb about that. We'll have some official announcements about that coming. But it's not too early to talk to him if you have an interest there. So uh, thanks for coming. It was great to have you. When were you here last summer? Sometime, June, July? Uh, yeah, around there. So it's great to have you back and today to have you bring God's word to us. Uh, he's going to tell a little bit about what they're doing and then preach God's word. So we love you guys. We love your family. Uh, we pray for you. Uh, you're on our hearts. And to have you here twice in a one-year period is a great joy for us. I don't know if you've ever preached from the moon, the moon before, but uh, first time, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a little light up here. The gravity's a little, a little less. But uh, anyway, welcome, Dave. Let's welcome Dave as he brings God's word. Well, good morning. Grace Church uh, just has a really special place in our heart. Um, we're supported by a number of different churches, and we visit, I mean, I've probably visited 15 this year, uh, and yet of all the churches, Grace is just the church that is the, the biggest encouragement for us. Uh, and when I think of, of Grace, I'm just encouraged. And so the trip that when we had the four of y'all come out, it was just a huge blessing. So um, so I'm Dave Hare, uh, my wife Stacy's picture, and the four kids, Caden, Makara, Elias, and Zoe, up there on the screen, they're sitting down here. We also have with us, I'll have Dave and Amanda stand up, uh, Dave and Amanda Ernst. Um, <clears throat> Dave and Amanda are currently raising support to join our team. Uh, Dave is an artist, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that's going to look like tonight. So if you want to come tonight, you can find out more about how uh, art and media is going to play a role in our ministry in the future. 
Um, so we uh, were here in 2012. We were sent out from here in 2013 uh, to Cameroon, Africa. And if you don't know where Cameroon is, uh, that's okay. I didn't know where it was either. Um, it's in West Central Africa. And we live in the East region of Cameroon. And uh, when we left here, the next picture is a picture of our house, I believe. That's our house in the village. So we left here. We actually went to France first and then uh, studied French because that's the government language in Cameroon. And then we went to Cameroon and moved into this home. And we've been there pretty much since 2014 um, with a few interruptions and uh, have been working with the Kwakum people. And we told you when we were leaving in 2012, 2013, we told you what we wanted to do was to help the Kwakum have the Bible in their language for the very first time. And going out to do that, we knew that there were going to be a lot of obstacles, a lot of barriers to the Kwakum people knowing God, knowing his word, understanding who he is. And one of the very first barriers that uh, Pastor Craig just mentioned was they didn't even have a writing system. So we were going into this village and uh, learning the language orally and not having any sort of writing system to help us learn it. Uh, and they, they had never read their language before either. So um, it's taken years, but after years of studying and working, we came back to Dallas and did some more linguistics uh, studies. And Stacy helped the Kwakum people come up with um, with uh, the very first uh, writing system for the Kwakum people. And since that time, we've been able to do literacy and also start translating the Bible. And uh, we have two teams that work with us translating the Bible. This is my team. Uh, we do the drafting. So we come up with the very first rough draft of the, Kwakum, of the Bible in the Kwakum language that's ever been produced. Uh, we have a separate team. I should have put their picture up too, but they go out and then test what we've, tra what we've drafted. So they go to different villages. They run different checks to make sure that we've done a good job. And uh, one really neat thing about my team is my job is just to study the Bible. I mean, that's just a huge part of what I do, which is fun. I just love it. And I spend about a week before each of our sessions just studying the Bible, trying to make sure that I understand the text well so that I can help them to understand the text well. There's a principle in translation, you can't translate something you don't understand. And so we've been working with them, trying to help them to understand the Word of God. And what I've found is that the barrier isn't just they don't have a written language, but there's a whole uh, different array of barriers in the way of the Kwakum people understanding the Word of God. And some of the barriers in them understanding as we've been translating through the word are just normal kind of questions that they have when, they, when we're translating the text. So over and over again, as we're understanding, these guys are understanding for the first time God's message, they keep saying to me, why would God do that? They keep coming up with the same question over and over and over again. That's not how we would have done it. Why in the world would he do that? That's not the, the, the kind of God that we're used to hearing about. And some of those questions are probably questions you guys have had before. So why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, right? If he hadn't done that, there wouldn't have been sin, you know. That's a normal question I think probably anyone who's ever studied the book of Genesis has had. But then they have questions that arise because of just their culture. So one question they ask me all the time is, why does God never use the oldest son? 
If you just read through, especially the Old Testament, you're studying all these stories about God using the second son, or David was like the last son, right? He's, he's, he's always using the younger sons, and that's never bothered me. Uh, I'm the oldest son in my family, and there, there's no particular, in my American culture, there's no particular uh, place put on me as the oldest son. But in Kwakum culture and in Jewish culture, the oldest son is expected to have the most authority, to have uh, the most responsibility, especially after the father dies. So the Kwakum have been confused by that. Um, They've also had some barriers um, that have come because they just have heard false things. Um, So one thing you might be surprised at, I don't know if if the team was surprised when they came out, is that there are just tons of churches in Cameroon. So you have to know what they look like, which this next picture is a picture of a church. So if you know what the churches look like, you know what to look for. And they're just in, in almost every Kwakum village, there is a church. And so we set out our first, uh, our first term to just visit all of these different churches and listen to what is being taught. And over and over again, we sat in these churches and we heard messages, but we never heard the gospel. And what we heard instead, over and over again, is what would be called the prosperity gospel. And so the prosperity gospel teaches that God is a, a wealthy God, that he owns everything. That's absolutely true. God is also a generous God who loves to care for his children. That's also true. These are good things. But then they take it one step further, and they give you lists of things to do. And they say, if you do this list of things, actually at one church they have a chalkboard in the front, and there's a literal list, a literal checklist. If you do these things, then God will bless you. He'll bless you with health. He'll bless you with wealth. You'll be able to have many children. They love having kids. So they have all of these blessings they're expecting from God as long as they do the list. Now that message sounds pretty good, and I can understand why people like it, but there's a major problem with it, and that's that it's not true. And because it's not true, because that's not how God works, that's not what God does, the prosperity gospel never results in holiness. And what I've seen in Cameroon is it results in one of two things. It results in pride. So there are people who are healthy and wealthy in Cameroon. It's usually pastors. Um, because there, one of the list of things to do is to give money to your pastor, right? And so, and, and they, they're proud. They, they strut around like roosters in front of their churches, and they, it's, it's assumed that they're godly because they're healthy and wealthy, right? Um, and that, but for most people in Cameroon, what it results in is despair, because they're doing the list. They're giving money to the church. They're coming to church. They're praying. They're doing all these things, and yet they're still poor, and their children still die, and they're still sick, and they don't understand what is happening. So into this wrong and broken and exploitative system, we have now been translating the word of God for the very first time so that the Kwakum people are starting to see who God is. And as we asked our our group that we've been working with, uh, just as we were leaving, we asked them, what has been the most impactful story that we've we've translated? Because right now we're translating Old Testament Bible stories so they can understand who God is in a global picture of the Bible. And all of them said it was the story of Joseph. And I want you to take a moment and think about, I know you guys know the story of Joseph, but think about the the components of the story of Joseph through the mind of someone who has been hearing about God through the prosperity gospel. So Joseph was a young man who honored his father, obeyed his father. His father told him to go spy on his brothers, and he did it. His father gave him special clothes and liked him kind of the best of all the brothers. He hasn't done anything wrong. 
right? And yet his brothers, because of jealousy, because of their sin, throw him into a pit, ultimately sell him into slavery. He goes and lives at Potiphar's house and as a slave works hard and honors his master. And while honoring his master, he's elevated to a higher position within Potiphar's house. And then he is lusted after by Potiphar's wife and he flees temptation. These are all godly things. He's doing the right things. And yet what happens because of that? He gets thrown into prison. Then in prison, he works hard as a, as a prisoner. He works hard. And God honors that. He's elevated to a, a position of authority within the prison. And then he interprets dreams. Who can do that except for a man of God, right? It's God interpreting through his man. And he says to the man who leaves the prison, don't forget me. And what does the guy do? He forgets him. He leaves him in prison for years. And then you get to the end of the story and you think, okay, well, all of that's happened, but he is then elevated out of that prison and brought to the second position of authority in Egypt. So that's the prosperity gospel, right? Well, what is he elevated out of prison for? It's to save the lives of his oppressors. It's to save the lives of those brothers that threw him into prison in the first place. That's not the prosperity gospel. And as, the, as my team, as we've been wrestling through this and as we've been teaching this, the Kwakum people just keep responding to me and saying, one, one of the men on my team said, this is not the God that we have been taught. I was kind of glad to hear that because it's not. The God of the Bible is not the God that they have been taught. <clears throat> and they're struggling with trying to understand why God is allowing Joseph to do all this, to go through all this suffering when he is a godly man. And they just don't understand what God is doing. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I felt that way. When I'm reading the Bible, I feel that way sometimes. Why, why would you do it this way? That's not the way I would do it. I felt this way just in my life when I've had certain things happen. Why, God, why are you letting this happen? Or to some of my friends, why would you let that happen to my friends? If you feel those, if you have those questions, I just want to encourage you that that's normal. My Kwakum translators have those questions. We have those questions at times. And as I was studying the Bible just on my own in, in Cameroon, I was reading Habakkuk and I realized Habakkuk, who's a prophet of God, actually had those same questions. So we're going to take a minute today and just do a flyby over the book of Habakkuk. And I want you to see a prophet, a man of God, who's struggling with those same questions that our Bible translators are struggling with in the Bible. So if you'll turn to, or in Cameroon, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, if you start with Matthew and go back five books, I think that's the easiest way to find Habakkuk. It's a small book. It's not one we read all that often. I'm going to, again, it's, I'm just going to read a bunch of different verses all throughout. We'll be able to have them up on the screen. We're going to start with just verse 1 to give us a little context. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So we don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk other than what's in this verse right here. Um, and the verse itself is kind of a little bit hard to understand. I don't generally use the word oracle. I don't know if you guys do. I think of the matrix when I hear the word oracle. And that's not what's happening here. Um, here the word oracle really just means a message. So this is a divine message that's been brought to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a prophet. Um, the Kwakum don't really have a word for prophet. So what's a prophet? A prophet is just someone who speaks for God. Someone who gives messages for God. And then at the very end, you'll notice this is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. 
Um, so I thought that was interesting when I noticed it because you kind of read through this, it seems like a conversation between God and, and Habakkuk, and it is. But I think this and then a, a few other places, it helps us indicate that actually while Habakkuk was having this conversation, he was actually having a vision. So he's actually seeing some of these things we're going to talk about later in the book of Habakkuk. Now, again, we don't know a ton about Habakkuk. We know that he lived in the southern kingdom during the divided kingdom of Israel. So if you remember historically, at one point, God split up the nation of Israel into two kingdoms. And there was the northern kingdom they called Israel, the southern kingdom they called uh, Judah. And uh, because of idolatry and sin and disobedience, God had actually punished the northern kingdom by bringing the Assyrians in. The Assyrians were a violent people group. They took uh, the people of Israel out um, from the northern kingdom and brought them into slavery, killed a bunch of them, and it was horrible. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah had seen that happen, and they knew they were the only Israelites remaining in the lands now. And they had seen that Israel had gone away, and it's been about 100 years when we're, when we're reading what we're reading in Habakkuk. They saw that happen, and you'd think they'd learn the lesson, right? You'd think they'd learn from the northern kingdom that if they disobey God, there will be consequences. But I think what we're going to find in the next section, which is often entitled Habakkuk's Complaint, we're going to find that they, they didn't really learn the lesson. So let's read verses 2 through 4. This is Habakkuk praying to God. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. So again, here we have Habakkuk living in that southern kingdom of Judah. He's looking around at his neighbors, and what is he seeing? He's seeing violence iniquity, destruction, strife, contention. He's seeing there's no justice law. The law is perverted. And so obviously they weren't learning this lesson from the northern kingdom. They were living in sin. And Habakkuk is a man of God. And men of God, when they're surrounded by people who are sinning, especially people who are supposed to be God's people, they cry out and they grieve and they're distressed. And that's what's happening here. And you can see kind of the first notes of uh, Habakkuk questioning, not understanding, because he says, how long shall I cry out for help and you will not hear? So apparently this isn't the first time he's prayed to God about this. And he's frustrated. Essentially, he's crying out, God, why are you not doing something about this? Israel, in this case, the Jews, the kingdom of Judah, these are your people, and they're living in violence and injustice. Why would you not do something about this? And something happened to Habakkuk that's never happened when I've asked God these questions. God answered Habakkuk, and we get to see the answer starting in verse 5. Let's just read verse 5 first. Chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So this is a surprising response, I would imagine. Habakkuk's looking around, he's seeing violence all around him among the Jews, and he's crying out to God, God, why are you not doing something? And God says, I am doing something. I'm doing something you wouldn't even have imagined of if, you, if I had asked you what I should do in the situation. And the next part here is going to help us understand what it is that God is doing. So let's read verses 6 through 11. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. 
They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from, from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on, press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So remember the conversation. Habakkuk is saying, God, I'm looking around, I'm seeing violence among your people. Why aren't you doing something? God is now responding. He says, I am doing something. You won't even believe what I'm doing. I am bringing in the Chaldeans. You may not have heard of the Chaldeans. They're the Babylonians. You probably heard that name, right? I'm bringing in the Babylonians. What kind of people are the Babylonians? They're a violent, angry people. And why are they coming? They're coming for violence. What happened to the northern kingdom is going to happen to you too. The Babylonians are going to sweep in. These are the only Israelites, the only Jews left in the land. They're going to come in. They're going to take them into slavery. They're going to kill them. I don't know how you would feel if you had been Habakkuk in this place. We fortunately get to see how he felt in verse 12. So let's read verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O, o Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and O Rock, you have established them for a reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You can follow Habakkuk's complaint here. You can understand what he's saying. He's saying, God, I'm looking around. I'm seeing the Jews. They're not honoring you with their lives. They're violent. I'm seeing injustice. Why aren't you doing something? God responds and says, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Babylonians in, and they're going to come and take you captive and murder many of you and destroy your land. And Habakkuk is responding and saying, what? How could you do that? How could you take someone who is more violent and more angry and more sinful? These are people that said when they get done destroying nations, they walk away and say, we are gods. Their own might is their God. How can you use someone like that to judge your own people, your, your, own, right, your own people that you've made promises to? I think there's two components to his confusion here. One, you'll note he says, um, he speaks about the the, the the nature of who God is. He said, you are of purer eyes than to see evil. So he's confused. He says, you're a righteous God, and you're going to take someone who's evil to judge a less evil people. That doesn't make sense. He also says, um, we shall not die. You've ordained them as a reproof. So what he's saying is, I think here is, is what he's saying is, you've made promises to us as your people that you're going to bless us forever. So this can't be the death of your people. So I want you to note when he says those things, he's actually not operating like a skeptic. I once uh, heard an atheist, I've tried to figure out who it was, but I don't remember. It was one of those book writing, you know, speaking in public atheists. And he said, I expect that God would be at least as compassionate as me. Now, that's not Habakkuk's attitude here. That, that atheist was looking down at God and judging him. Habakkuk here is actually appealing to who he knows God to be. He's trusting in that God and saying, wait a minute, you're a righteous God. I don't understand how you could do this. So there's one commentator that said that it was not a weak faith, but a perplexed faith that torments Habakkuk. 
So in other words, Habakkuk's looking at God and he's saying, I know your character, I know the covenant, the promises that you've made to your people, and I just don't understand how you could do this. So God's response to this second complaint of Habakkuk here comes in uh, the form of a vision. So he's going to see things, he's going to hear what, what God is, is saying. You can see in chapter 2, verse 2, God introduces it before the vision begins. And he says, the Lord answered me, write this vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So again, Habakkuk's job is a prophet. So his job is to communicate what God tells him. And here, God is giving him a vision. He says, I want you to write this down. And I want you to give it to people to run around and tell everybody. And the vision isn't just for the Jews. It's actually even for the Babylonians. And just as a side note, one of the reasons that we do Bible translation in a written form for an oral people group is because of verses like this. All over in the Bible, uh, God commands that his word be written down. And that's really good for us because we are able to benefit from that by reading the Bible now. And we want the kwakum to be able to benefit too. Now, so God, he, he, gives, uh, he gives Habakkuk a little, uh, uh, you know, introduction to his vision, saying, write this down, write down what you see, make sure everyone reads it. It might take a while, and don't worry, it will happen, because it's me who's talking. I don't lie. It's going to happen. And then now we jump right into the vision in verse 4. In verse 4, it says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. I found it a little bit jarring as I was studying this to jump into this vision here and, and try to understand what it is that God was meaning by this verse. Um, first of all, it's hard because he says his soul is puffed up. So it's like whose soul? You know, just a pronoun with no antecedent, right? And what I've come to find in studying it is this is the flow of the conversation. Uh, Habakkuk is crying out to God. He's seeing violence all around him. And he's saying, God, why aren't you doing something? God responds and says, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Babylonians in. They're going to come and bring you captive. Uh, you're going to be slaves. A lot of you will die. They're going to destroy your cities. And Habakkuk responds and says, how could you do this? How could you use a more evil people group to judge a less evil people group? That doesn't make sense to Habakkuk. And, and here he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. He's talking about the Babylonians. And he's saying, you're right. He is a wicked people. He is a people group, this, this speaking he is speaking of the people group, the Babylonians. They're a people who, who worship themselves, but the righteous will live by faith. Now, you may have heard that verse before, the righteous shall live by faith, but you're probably thinking of it in the New Testament. And this verse is quoted in, uh, in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. In Romans 1, 7, Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this verse has actually dramatically changed the way that we worship. And what we, uh, we do as a church here is shaped by how the Lord used this verse in the life of a, a Catholic monk back in the 1500s. So you guys know of Martin Luther. You've heard of him. He read this verse and at first was super frustrated because it says, The righteous shall live by his faith. And he was struggling because he's trying to make himself righteous so he could live by his faith. 
And he actually, Luther says he was angry with God because he saw God as righteous and himself as unrighteous and he didn't understand how he was supposed to make himself righteous. But of course, over time, Luther realized God opened his eyes to see that the righteousness that God gives us is not righteousness that we earn, but instead it's righteousness that is given because of what Christ has done on the cross. So just like Abraham, it doesn't say Abraham did a lot of great stuff and God counted to him as righteousness, but instead he believed and God counted him to righteousness. So Luther was greatly changed just in understanding what the word righteous meant here, which was huge. But I want to take a moment and just focus on what the word faith means. The Kwakum don't really have a, a noun for faith. And so as we've been wrestling and trying to, to think about how to communicate the concept of faith in the Kwakum language, I've had to struggle with it myself and just wonder, do I even really understand what the Bible means uh, when it says faith? I've always heard different things. You know, we, what does faith mean? Well, the Kwakum have a verb for believe. So we often, you know, when we're talking about faith, we, we use the verb to believe. Um, and but even that, at least in English, when we say believe, usually it kind of means more of a, a mental ascent. And I've heard illustrations, if you really have faith in a chair, you know, you, you'll sit in the chair. It's not just, you know, believing that. And I, you know, I've wrestled with all of that, and I've never, I would never actually say that I have faith in a chair. You know, that, that's just, it's, it's, it's hard. And I think probably for the majority of Americans, when they hear the word faith, it doesn't really mean much to them. Or at least it doesn't mean what the Bible means by it. So as we're translating these Old Testament stories and just wrestling through these concepts, they're learning about who God is and what God expects. They're learning about what these words mean by understanding how God has communicated it in stories. And so if you think of the, probably the greatest example of faith is Abraham. And if you think about the life of Abraham, three main events there. You've got the one where he's called out of his country. God calls Abraham. Apparently before this, uh, Abraham, or at least his parents, had been worshiping other gods. Um, but God calls Abraham and says, I want you to go to a different place where you won't know anyone. And there's a whole bunch of wicked people that live there that are going to later need to be conquered. And what did Abraham do? He just went he just packed up all his stuff, left his father and his family, and, and went to a new country. And then later on we hear uh, that God is promising, well, at the same time, really, that he's promising that he will have, be the father of many nations. And, of course, Abraham was, was sterile. He, his wife was sterile. They weren't able to have children. And God actually changes his name at one point. When we were going through this with our translators, it was kind of fun because God calls, changes Abraham's name to Abraham, Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. So you can imagine a guy who has no kids, he's about 100 years old, walking around saying, hi, my name is the father of many nations, right? But Abraham just believed him. He just, he trusted that what God said was true. And then God calls him to, to sacrifice his son and go up on a mountain, the only son that he's been waiting for for so long. And it says he just went out the first, the, the, the early in the morning the next day, he went out to go sacrifice his son. And I think as we've been studying this, I've been coming to understand it better for myself and for my team. I've come to understand that really most of the time when the Bible says faith, what it means is trust. Abraham trusted God. We, he, he went up on that mountain to sacrifice his only son, and God had promised him he would be the father of many nations, and he just trusted God. And his actions showed that he trusted God. And so with that in mind, keeping in mind um, the way that this, the book is structured, again, think about the argument with me. Um, Habakkuk is saying to God, I'm looking around, I'm seeing violence. Why aren't you doing anything? God responds, I am doing something, and I'm bringing the Babylonians in, and they're going to take you into captivity. And Habakkuk says, 
what? How could you do that? How could you use a people who are more evil than Israel to judge Israel? And then God responds and says, you're right. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Do you trust me? I think that's really what he's saying here. But the righteous shall live by his faith. He's saying, do you trust me? Now, at different places in the different prophets, God actually reveals a lot of different things about what's going to happen and that Israel's going to come back into the land and um, that there's going to be a Messiah. He doesn't do that for Habakkuk. He doesn't show him all that stuff. But he does give him a few little glimpses of it. So let's just scan through some other verses real quick. In chapter 2, verse 8, this is actually part of the prophecy that was meant for Babylon. And this is what it says. Because you have plundered many nations, all of the remnants of, of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So here, Habakkuk, part of this prophecy is Habakkuk's going to Babylon, the Babylonians, and saying, you have conquered a lot of people and you've killed many, many people with violence and it's not going to last forever. And in fact, there is actually going to be a judgment for you one day. He gives him some more hope in verse 14. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So remember, Habakkuk's looking around him and seeing only violence and injustice. And, and God makes him a promise there will be a day when you can walk out these doors and you can look around and all you will see is the knowledge of the glory of God. It'll be like how the waters cover the sea. If you go to the sea and look at the waters, what part is not covered with waters? It's just all water. I mean, that's what the sea is, right? And God is promising that there is going to come a day when we can go out and all we will see is the knowledge of the glory of God. That's hope, isn't it? Verse 20, God says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So Habakkuk is, is, is feeling out of control. He's feeling like his people group is out of control. He's, he's hearing the Babylonians are now going to come and take them captive. And God says, you know what? I'm on my throne. And all the world can keep silence before me. So again, God never fully explained this to Habakkuk. He gave him a few little, little hints. But I think Habakkuk got the point. And I think he got the point because of chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Let me read those. This is the, the very end of the book. This is Habakkuk rejoicing. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places." So do you hear Habakkuk's faith here? He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He says, you know, though the fig tree should not blossom and the, the fruit of the not be on the vines. Imagine, you know, the, the Israelites were, were an agricultural people like the Kwakum. They farmed, they raised animals. And I think, based on what I've read here, that this is a vision that Habakkuk's seeing. He's actually seeing the destruction that's going to come from Babylon. He's going to go out and see the trees broken off. He's going to go out and see no food in the field and all the animals dead. He's seeing that in his vision. He's seeing that that's, and he knows this is God saying it, so it's definitely going to happen. And yet, how does he respond? He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my, what is it? Salvation. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he trusts God will be his salvation. 
So through the process of this book, I think God brought Habakkuk to a point where not because he understand all, understood all the answers, not because he knew exactly how God was going to bring it about, he brought Habakkuk to the understanding of something that's very important, and that is that God is not like us. He doesn't think like we do. He doesn't plan things out the way we would expect him to plan them out. And sometimes we're left wondering like Habakkuk, God, why are you not doing something? Or why did you do that? Or why are you allowing this to happen? But I think it's actually really good news for us that God is not like us. One of the reasons that's pointed out in this passage is that God doesn't lie. So every, I lie, and, and humans, we lie. But God never lies. So every time he tells us he's going to do something, we can know it's going, to be, it's going to happen. It's a whole lot easier to trust when we believe that. And also it's good because we know that God always is going to do what is good for his people. For those who have faith in him. For those who trust in him, he will always bring good. We know that because he said it and he never lies, right? And this is good for us that God's not like us. Every single time in ministry, I've thought, you know, I think this is how God's going to do it. It never happens that way, ever, because God's not like me, and he knows so much more than I know, and I'm glad that he doesn't do things the way that I would have expected. This has all culminated in one great act in which God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. How many of you who created a whole bunch of people who all rebelled against you and hate you and spit at you would say, I'm going to send my son, they're going to murder him, and I'm going to use that to save their lives? That's not how I would have chosen it. But I'm so glad that God is not like me. Because I wouldn't have chosen to save so many people, I'm sure. So I've had the opportunity to watch God shape and mold the minds of Kwakum people as they're starting to understand for the first time who God really is. And it's been just super powerful. I just want to share with you a story um, of one couple. We shared this story last time we were here last year, but not everybody was there, so, um, and you probably didn't hear the whole story. So let me just share with you a little bit about uh, Ko and Mommy. Mommy is, uh, is right here. Um, Mommy, we got to know on our very first term on the field in the market, primarily Stacy, because I'm afraid of the market. It's a, it's a really intense place. Um, but in the intensity of the market, there was a gleaming tower of intensity, which was Mommy. And she would follow Stacy around and just be like, why would you buy that from them and not from me? And whenever we would go on a trip somewhere, she'd be like, here, here are some things you can get for me while you're away. And when we came back, she's like, where are my presents, you know? And we're thinking, mommy, we're not friends, you know? Why would we be buying you presents? So a few, maybe a couple years, I don't know, a year into it, God did an amazing thing. He took mommy and put her in the house right behind our house. So now she's our neighbor. And it's not just that we see her in the, in, in the market, but we actually saw her every day. And she started coming to our house every day and, and continuing to demand things from us and even asking that she could come and work in our house. And we're thinking, of all the people in the world that I don't want working in my house, you know, it's mommy. She was just a frustrating person. And Stacy, much better than me, was really struggling and wanting to show her love and showing her love in the midst of being frustrated. And uh, we came back here, we were in Dallas, and, and we maybe thought that relationship would fall away, you know, who knows. But when we got back to Cameroon, we found that she was still living in that house right behind our house and was still coming every day now to uh, ask for a job in our house, and we were still frustrated. But at one point, uh, we were, in the, it was an evening, and we heard a loud noise going on at that house that was right behind us. 
And the Kwakum deal with conflict violently. So most of the time, it's, it's actually a lot of screaming, and there's usually not really severe uh, injuries, but sometimes there's machetes and, and two-by-fours, and, and people can get hurt. And um, sometimes I'll go out if I think there's going to be physical danger. Usually if they're just screaming, I won't. In this case, we didn't go, I didn't go check out what was happening. And we found out in the morning that mommy's father had been murdered that night. And so they have a six-day funeral celebration. We went and, and, and we're just trying to show some support. Other members of our church came, show her support and, and show her love. And during that funeral, Mommy just clung to Stacy, just, just followed her around the whole time, which seemed really strange because this is her family, right, that's at the funeral, and yet she's clinging to Stacy. What we've come to learn is that even in the frustrated state that, that we were, Stacy had really shown her love, and she just has never known love. Never known real love. And that softened our hearts, and, and we, we said we're willing to, to give you a shot at being, uh, uh, you know, coming and working in her house, doing some dishes, cleaning, because she wanted to have, she, she was pregnant with this baby here, and, um, and so we, she came, and, but Stacy said, if you come, we're going to do a Bible study every day. And so Stacy started doing a Bible study with her, and it took some time, and at first there was especially this kind of cultural resistance to some of the things she was learning, but at some point, God just saved mommy. And it was fantastic to see because he didn't just save her, but he just completely transformed her into a new creature to the point that to this day, both she and, and her boyfriend, her husband now, Co, um, when they hear something in the Bible, they're like, well, it has to be true. I mean, it's in the Bible. You know, I have to obey it because it's in the Bible. Just this great, deep trust in God and, and faith in his word. And it's been really powerful to, uh, to watch the word of God change them. And... <clears throat> One, one amazing just testimony of her faith, at one point, um, mommy came to us and she explained that her stepbrother, who had killed her father, she had testified against him and he went to prison. And the prisons in Cameroon are just horrible, like almost impossible to describe. Uh, I had prisoners tell me at one point that they long to see cockroaches because they're so hungry. Uh, when they're, when they're in the, the prisons. She knew the prisons were like that, knew her stepbrother was in there, her stepbrother who killed her father. And she, she said to Stacy, I just feel like if I go and I feed him and I help him during this time, it would be like I'm feeding Jesus. That's just the word of God shaping her. And so we did. We helped her for, for years. We helped her minister to her brother in prison. And, uh, and it wasn't easy. It's not, he, didn't, he didn't just like become a Christian, you know. He was still the same guy he was when he went in there. And it was hard, and yet she ministered to him. But it came at a pretty severe cost for her. Her family basically saw this as a choice to, to take the side of the murderer rather than the murdered. And so they excommunicated her from the family, uh, which in Africa, at least in Cameroon, it's a big deal because your, your family is your support structure. Uh, when you need things, when you need money, when you need help, your family helps you. And they said, we want nothing to do with you. One of her cousins even tried to hit her with, with his motorcycle. Um, it, and so she paid a great cost. I want you to take a moment and just think about, you're a, a, a Kwakum woman who's heard your whole life, you need to manipulate the spirits. If you do what, you, what, what the spirits want, they'll give you what you want. You've probably heard the prosperity gospel, which says the same thing. If you manipulate God, he'll give you what you want if you do the things he says. Um, and here she's trying to honor the Lord by feeding a man in prison, and um, she's suffering for it. Um, a little while later, um, they, they had uh, baby David there, and then later she got pregnant again, and uh, they were really excited about that, and, um, and they were... Um, 
also nervous because they're just very poor and this is another mouth to feed. And uh, about uh, nine months, I kind of skipped a couple slides here, but Mommy and Co, her, her husband, the next slide, um, got baptized together and then later got married, which was an amazing testimony to the power of God. Um, if you go to the next slide, I think it's... Uh, Nope, that's the video. So I'll, I'll introduce that in a minute. But So they got pregnant again. They're having this baby. About 39 weeks, mommy started to bleed. And uh, so she was very concerned. We took her to the, the local clinic uh, in the village, which is not a whole lot different than the prison. Uh, the, the people who work there don't love the people. And they just, there's neglect. If you can't pay, they won't help you at all. Um, and it's, it's dirty. There's, there's no uh, running water and electricity. And um, I don't know if it was because of the neglect of, um, of those workers there in the hospital or if it's just the way that, that it was going to be anyway, but the baby died. And um, they ended up sending us to another clinic. And it's a long story, but uh, there at that clinic, they, they did a C-section to, to take the baby out. And um, she says that um, when she went into the operating room, they strapped her to the bed, and uh, for at least part of it, she was conscious and, and suffered just the, the great pain of, of going through a C-section. And then, you know, being in the hospital for weeks, healing up uh, without the joy of having a baby with her, um, and then finally coming back home um, and not being able to do all the things that she's used to doing because she, she's still healing. It took months to heal up. And again, I want you to just, just think about what would that be like for you if you've only heard the prosperity gospel your whole life. You're thinking you're living to honor the Lord, and yet all of this suffering keeps happening to you. How would you respond to that? Um, I, we asked mommy how she responded to what had been happening in her life right before we left, and we recorded a video. I want you to hear what she said. Ya 
ninjena ye bakabe banu ben ni bon ogban pen ninjena she me she me cash pale nyi le she se no problem she me she la e she di ilu mo gba ko ninjena shambu she na ko le o so in case you miss it, uh, mommy, because really of the, the story of Joseph had come to an understanding that God uses evil for good. And she said, I see this in two ways in my life. One, if my father hadn't been murdered, I probably wouldn't have become a Christian. And then two, um, once uh, they had lost the baby, we had the, the funeral for the baby, um, someone ran to tell her family about what happened, the family that had uh, disowned her. And they thought that the family would actually rejoice. Um, but when they got there, the family felt compassion. And they came and, and, and cared for mommy during that time. And so mommy is looking at this situation not with her cultural perspective, not with the prosperity gospel in mind, but with the word of God in her mind. And she's trusting in God. And she's able to rejoice, kind of like Habakkuk. <laughs> At the end, what did Habakkuk say? He said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the, the God of my salvation. I don't know if you saw her face, well, because you were reading the lines, but her face was just radiant. But she has joy, a great joy that can only come when we trust God. I'm going to pray that God would help us to be like mommy. But before I do, I just want to ask you that question. Do you trust God? Do you trust him when you're reading in the Bible and you don't understand why God did things the way that he, he, he did them? Do you trust him when you lose a child or when you're in a car accident or you lose your job? There's a lot of pressure in American culture right now to be ashamed of the God of the Bible. And in fact, right when we got back to the States, I heard of the pastor who said, we need to, Christians, we need to unhitch ourselves from the, the Old Testament, because that's not the same God as, as the God we worship. And it's just the opposite. We need the Old Testament. We need to know who God is so that we can trust him. Abraham was able to do it, not even knowing who God was. But we have a whole book full of truth about who God is so that we can trust him. Um, I mentioned to you guys that we don't know, uh, we don't have a word for, for a noun for faith in Kwakum. But right before we left, I actually heard uh, a man in, in a situation um, saying, I believe it was something about a field and, and his son, he was leaving the field to his son. And I was just saying, are you sure he's going to do what you want him to do with that field? And he said, well, I gave him my heart. And I came to realize at some point during that process that that's how they say trust, is to give your heart to someone. And I, I really like that, because your heart's this vulnerable, squishy organ in your body that can't protect itself. And if you were to give your heart to someone, you'd have to trust them. And so my call for you today, you're going to encounter things, if you haven't already, that are perplexing. You're going to wonder why God's doing things. That's normal. That's just a part of the human life, because we're limited and God is not. But do you trust God? I can make you a promise right now that if you do trust God, you'll never regret it. Mommy doesn't regret it. She's such a great example to us of trust, of trust in God. She's a, a now an orphan. She lives in this wood plank house. You know, that she's one of the poorest people in the world, and yet she has greater joy than the vast majority of Americans. So let me pray that we would be like Mommy. Father, I thank you so much for the example of mommy and of her husband, Co, as well, who have really just taken your word and just trusted it and believed it and submitted to it and obeyed it. And Father, there's such a great example of even those who, who do suffer and are poor that have such great joy. Father, I pray that you would help us to have that kind of faith, a trust that we know that you are good no matter what is happening. 
even when we don't understand, even when we're weeping and suffering and lamenting, we're trusting because we do know who you are. I pray you give us that trust, give us that faith, and give us that joy. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.